Hello, everyone. Welcome to EIG's Women in the Law event, the first Women in the Law event for 2022. And I am very, very excited and honored to welcome Elizabeth Schmelzel, uh, who is going to be joining us as our guest today. Um, just by way of background, before I turn it over to Elizabeth to introduce herself, I want to um, just kind of give a little bit of um, information on what uh, really struck me as interesting and compelling about Elizabeth and how we met. So. Elizabeth and I were both invited to participate on a panel discussion on immigration, George Mason University's law school. And then Elizabeth started talking and she literally had everyone. Every student, everyone just kind of like stopped taking notes and stopped what they were doing. Everybody was wearing masks, but I could see all eyes on Elizabeth and she was so engaging and she was so, so knowledgeable. It was just really, really a pleasure to kind of like watch her in action. So I, Googled her <laughs> and um, I read that Elizabeth, you've gotten your undergraduate degree from George Washington University. You studied law at UT Austin, which is one of the top law schools uh, in the nation. And you even obtained a master's degree from the London School of Economics. And with that resume uh, and that, that kind of like history in terms of like academic institutions, I hope this is not presumptuous, but you could have probably had your choice of any kind of like cushy corporate job um, in the legal field, yet you chose to dedicate your life to human rights. So I would love for you to introduce yourself, but then also really kind of tell us what that journey was like in making that decision. Sure, and thank you so much for having me. This is such a gift. It was such a gift to, to meet you and that sort of the ways the stars aligned for, for this moment to be happening. And thank you all for being here. Um, I know there are so many extraordinary women in this field, in the law generally, and just to be among, among some of you and men too is a real honor. So my journey, I think, though I didn't know it, started when I was 20. And I was studying abroad. And for the first time in my life, I was confronted with the reality of what borders do to people or what they can do to people. And at that time I was living um, in West Africa and Senegal. And so many of the, the truths I thought I knew as a 20 year old were crumbling. You know, that hard work meant you would make money. That hard work would meant you would be comfortable. That hard work meant you could uh, provide for your family. And I was seeing in Senegal the reality that there are certain situations in which no matter how hard you work, you can't get out of particular cycles. So um, some of what I had been taught was sort of falling, falling apart. Um, and I hadn't done enough reading at that point at 20 years old to understand critiques of these big systems that we have, like international capitalism, um, like international immigration. But I just knew something wasn't sitting right with me. And I was struck very much by the fact that so much of what I had, all of those opportunities I've, I've had to be at incredible institutions around extraordinary people and mentors is largely a product of where and when and to whom I was born. And there's nothing, in, there's nothing I did to earn, win, or deserve that. It was just a happy accident of the location of my birth. And that other people's accidents might not be so happy. And I realized that was a problem for me in my heart but I didn't know what to do with it at age 20. And so I kept reading, I kept traveling. I think that was one of the biggest influences in choosing this career. Um, 
Fast forward a few years, I lived in China, obviously learned a few things about human rights there, and that's what led me to go to the UK um, and, and get my master's degree. But at that point, I just felt like now I have knowledge, now I have literature and academic understanding of some of these problems a little bit, but I don't have skills to do anything about it. And I came from a very anti-lawyer family. You know, all the bad jokes about lawyers were told all the time in my family. Um, I never thought lawyers could be much good for the world until I started talking to some um, in the UK. And I realized that the power of an immigration attorney is the ability to push back a little bit on the authority we have given to borders. Um, and it's not I can't save anybody. I, I think my clients do most of the work in their cases. Um, they do more than I do. You know, they're the, they're the brave one. But this field and this career and refugee and asylum law in particular was a way for me to stand alongside people um, looking for the shot I have been given by accident. And they are trying to do it on purpose. Um, and so what, what an opportunity to to be a part of that, a small part of that. So I think that that's really amazing because I feel like what you've described is probably what a lot of our experiences, as in like we see things that don't sit well with us, but sometimes we don't necessarily know ex what to do about it. Um, but I wanna go back to something that you said. You said that um, your experience in Africa was one where you learned for the first time that just by hard work, that individual is not like guaranteed like they were going to like advance or like make it and i wanted to ask you to just kind of elaborate on that a little bit more like what did you mean by that yeah so i think we have this idea of um we have a really weird conception of what hard work is in the united states like <laughs> people say oh it's hard to be a lawyer okay it is it's stressful there's pressure i i but thinking about my actual day-to-day -day, i get up i sit down in front of a computer i think really hard i have difficult conversations that's not easy. But when I think back about the, the host family that I lived with, my Senegalese host mom woke up every day at 6.30, put a huge container on top of her head full of vegetables, walked all over our town, sold those vegetables for not very much money, um, and came home and provided for her family based on that. That is a physically demanding, not very uh, gratitude-inducing job that was essential to her community because she was the person who supplied nutrition to the entire neighborhood. Her job was no less difficult than mine, but it was physical labor. It wasn't one that required a bunch of fancy degrees. And so therefore we don't value it as much. She didn't have the kind of job that was going to lead to extraordinary economic comfort, extraordinary social advancement, but she was essential to her community in ways that probably I'm not. Um, and so this idea of, of what gets valued, who gets valued, I think is really complicated. And when I was living with her and, and seeing the hard physical labor, you know, in 90 degree weather every single day, um, I realized my office job, whatever it will be, I'm not sure it's ever gonna be as hard as this. And for me, um, it just made me question who gets valued, how, and why. That's amazing. Um, and that really resonates with me. I also kind of want to understand maybe like a little bit more. So I, I, I feel like what you're saying is like you had a problem with the injustice, you know, and kind of like the unearned advantages 
that some of us might be born into, you know, whereas somebody who is equally as human as us is unable to advance as a result of their circumstances. And that is something that kind of bothers me as well. But after having studied human rights in London and then deciding to go to law school, you could have chosen a variety of different paths when it came to like the area of law that you chose to practice. What made you specifically decide on immigration? Yeah, so some of it was just my personality. I didn't want to give up like the international flair to my life that I had throughout my 20s. And I think that this job lends itself, you know, I get to speak Spanish, I get to meet people from all over the world. But more importantly is um, I wanted a career where I felt like I could live out my values, my soul. I really felt like this was something that all of that traveling throughout my 20s had led me to. And it was a way to be in the thick of someone else's life um, meaningfully. And the conversations that I have had with clients over the years and the experiences I have had with clients over the years, the gift of being alongside someone who is going through maybe the worst thing they've ever gone through. It's really inexplicable. I think the honor that I feel that someone will tell me something they haven't said out loud in 25 years um, when I'm asking them about why it is they're afraid of their country is something I carry deeply and dearly because it is their bravery that is allowing me to do my, that is allowing me to do my job. And I didn't know all of this when I chose this field. I knew it bothers me that accidental birthright seems to create access to so much. Um, I knew that I enjoyed meeting people from all over the world. I knew a little bit about our immigration system seeming to be unfair, but, but now that I'm doing it, the richness of um, being in this fight with other people, I think is what keeps me coming back. So when you say you're in this fight with other people, I should specify you are currently a, a senior attorney with CARE, um, which is the Capital Area Immigrants Rights Coalition. So tell us a little bit about kind of the types of cases that make up your day-to-day -day docket. Sure. So almost 100% of our clients are currently in immigration detention in the Washington, D.C. area. They are held in facilities anywhere from two to five hours away. So before COVID, we would go and drive and, and visit them. Those visits have been a little bit limited now, um, but we still can go in person once in a while. Um, I personally represent clients mostly who are afraid to return to their countries. So a lot of asylum claims, a lot of people uh, fear torture. And so we argue that they're eligible for protection under the Convention Against Torture. What that means on a day-to-day -day basis is I'm almost always in trial prep. So we are always going to court and the detained docket moves very, very, very quickly. So unlike people who are not in detention trying to resolve their immigration cases where they might have court you know, two years down the line, our clients are given court dates you know, in a couple of months. So we have to move fast. We have to move quickly. It's very resource intensive um, to prepare for these asylum hearings, um, which are, in my case, hearings that I argue in both Baltimore and, and Arlington. Um, so in the throes of, of preparing for those hearings, I'm on the phone a lot with my clients, writing declarations. I'm recruiting experts. I'm putting together country conditions, evidence, and of course, drafting briefs. In addition to that direct rep at the immigration court level, I also do BIA appeals. So when we win or when we lose, um, there's often an appeal. And I think that's one of the most important things for folks to remember, particularly in the detained context about immigration appeals. If we win a case, 
and the Department of Homeland Security appeals, our clients have to remain detained by law through the duration of the appeal. So we have clients who, in one case, for example, we won the case in December, the appellate process took six and a half months, and for that time, my client was in detention after having won his case. He ultimately won the appeal and was released, but it is extraordinary, the liberty restrictions that the immigration system lays at the feet of these folks day in and day out, particularly during COVID, when we know that these detention centers are not following COVID protocol. Many of my clients have contracted COVID. Um, people have fallen seriously ill uh, because of COVID-19 in detention, and still the government hasn't in my view, budged very much on, on being more uh, reasonable when it comes to release, particularly for people who have won. That's really sad to hear that those sort of safety protocols are not being observed in the same way just because you're dealing with you know, immigrants and detention facilities. One thing that I wanted to ask you was whether you felt that the experience was difficult for women in immigration detention facilities versus men. Um, or um, different in some respects, um, just by virtue of the fact that you're dealing with, you know, females um, and so on and so forth. Kind of like, how does immigration detention and the experience that the uh, your clients have once they're in the United States and kind of like going through this, like, you know, deportation removal process differ when it comes to the men versus the women? Yeah, that's a great question. I and I've tried to think about that in preparation for this conversation. So. Most of the clients I had when I worked in, in Texas, sort of during and immediately after law school, um, were women. And most of my clients here are men. So I have like a really even uh, sample set. What's unique about um, detention in Texas, as many of you know, and probably heard during the Trump administration, we detain women and children together. And so women have the opportunity to live quite literally in large cages with their babies because of United States policy. And so when you go into those detention facilities and you see, you see a mom and her baby, I, I mean, you're seeing a child in diapers in what amounts to a jail because of my own country. I'll never get the image out of my head of this little baby in diapers crawling on the floor of the interview room. And the woman that we're interviewing or trying to get to know her case more from is telling us these traumatic, violent, often sexually violent stories in front of that child. And that wasn't the only one. They would, there would be children crawling on their mom's laps while we were preparing them, while we were going in and preparing the women for their credible fear interviews. So how it is that a woman in that scenario is supposed to parent and tell their entire trauma-based story to a stranger in that setting so that they have a shot at going to court for a hearing in which their life is on the line is extraordinary to me. And that is why I really, I really think that they are, they are the bravest party involved. And those women, who didn't know me, you know, I would come in, introduce myself, say, hey, we're going to prepare you for a screening interview in the asylum office, would do their very best with their, literally with their babies crawling on them or their toddlers there in the room, listening to their mom talk about how their dad abused them um, in order to move forward and give that child a shot is at the same time awesome in, in just remembering how powerful women are and 
also incredibly shameful to know that this is what we do to people. It, it doesn't have to be this way. One thing I learned in the UK, I did, a, I did a detention work in the UK as well. They don't detain asylum seekers. You know, none of this is inevitable. We could be better if we wanted to. We wouldn't have to force women to parent in a cage if we just changed our ways. Um, but there's too much political will, I think, against that. On the other hand, what I will say in terms of, of representing men, and I think this is just to show how powerful socialization is, um, at Care Coalition, like I said, I've had almost exclusively male clients, whereas my years in Texas, it was the opposite. And in Texas, uh, I would hear lots of traumatic stories and the women who would talk to me would, would cry, of course, um, as, we, as we got through those stories. And I still, a few years later now, have these conversations with men. And when the men cry, it gets to me more. And isn't that a sign of how I have been conditioned to believe being a man and being a woman is supposed to be? And, and it bothers me more. When, the, when men break down, I don't do as well. My like secondary trauma is far more intense, even though they are exhibiting the exact same motion, emotion as my, as my female clients. So it is so pervasive, you know, the, the gender dynamics and the, and the, the way we have been taught um, that men and women process and express emotions. I still get incredibly rattled when my male clients cry. I mean, that happened twice last week and I, it takes me far longer to recover from it than when my female clients would. But have you been able to like forgive yourself um, for when things don't necessarily work out? Because what I'm hearing is that you are absorbing way more burden than maybe someone else in your shoes. The, the weight of the world is on your shoulders when you're like representing these clients. So when it doesn't work out the way that you would want it to, are you able to forgive yourself and know that it, you did everything you could? Yeah, so I do feel like at Care Coalition, we, I, I feel proud of our, of our work product. I feel like by the time my hearings are over, I have done everything that I could. And that's a, that's a testament to our training here, my super, the people who supervise me, who have mentored me, um, the number of eyes I have looking at briefs before I submit them. And you know, one thing our supervisors often tell us is, you are the best possible lawyer for this client. I have, I have really started to, to believe that. And I am incredibly honest with clients about we, are, we never promise on outcomes. For me, it's not even losing the cases that are, that's the real difficulty. It's more of the process by which we lose being, being often so dehumanizing. Oh, I mean, can you imagine you going to a bond hearing? You're going to a bond hearing, you're trying to win your liberty and you have no right to have that hearing translated. That's what bond hearings, that is the law for bond hearings. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's extraordinary the injustice that's baked into the system. And there's nothing really that I can do about those big systemic issues, but I do feel them. So, I asked you permission before we got started that I was totally going to put you on the spot um, by telling you know everyone about a, a very kind of like brief moment that we had before we started the call. So here's the background. So you know I, I asked Elizabeth to log in a few minutes early so that we could kind of like test sound or whatever. And you know we were 
just kind of chatting like thank you so much for doing this and she says to me you know um thank you so much for having me i'm so excited she's like but i don't know why i'm just like totally not worth it so i don't you know and i was just like no like no did you just fall victim to imposter syndrome right before you know the women in law event and so i was just like i was like don't think that way and she was like you know oh my gosh i just did it i can't believe i did that and so with her permission um i i said you know i was going to share that in this call because that is such a thing that we women do you know it is such a thing that we do and it is not limited to a particular age or a particular stage of life here for example is this incredibly accomplished um, you know, woman who's a lawyer and, and so on and so forth. And she started off with, oh, why would you want to talk to me? And so um, I wanted to kind of tell that story to use as a segue into your experience being a woman in the law, but in this particular area of law. How has that either been different or difficult or maybe not because you're in more of like a niche field as opposed to maybe like a corporate job but would love to hear about how you've navigated your career so far as a woman yeah that's a great question i so the nonprofit sector at least in immigration is very female dominated and female identifying dominated and so in that way i feel a lot of solidarity you know the vast majority of my colleagues are also uh women in the law and we can kind of uh i don't commiserate. know bond, <laughs> yeah. yes, bond yeah. and commiserate I think one area in which I realize that my socialization as a woman has been a disadvantage is in court. We are in court all the time. This is a field, I mean, I'm in court almost every week. Um, and there is this like fourth grade little girl inside of me who was so well-trained to be nice, to be respectful and to not rock the boat. And that little girl does a disservice to my clients sometimes. I can feel her like being timid and, and not saying what's on the tip of my tongue, uh, even, in, even in court. I'll give you a concrete example. Last week I was in a hearing and um, the charging document that the Department of Homeland Security had was full of flaws. And I pointed that out to the judge and I said, I'm not gonna plead to this document as written. Um, but what I should have done orally is then move to terminate the case because the Department of Homeland Security had no charge that my client was removable from the United States. And I, I had that thought in my brain, I had it in my mouth and I just couldn't get it out. Now it's fine, I submitted a written motion you know, hours later. And so the argument is on the record, but that is one of those situations in which I, I know it's this, the lessons I learned about, make sure you compromise, make sure you take care of other people's needs, make sure you don't upset anybody are affecting the way that I am communicating because I don't wanna tick off the judge and I don't wanna start a fight with DHS and so on and so forth, but that is my job. Like I chose an adversarial job, not only because I am a lawyer, but because I am a courtroom lawyer, you know? And so I have to just get it out. And this is an area of growth that I, I want to continue working on. But when I have, particularly after last week, I was really thinking about why do you not say what you know? And I, I cannot help but go back to, you know, that 10 year old who was just taught and retaught and retaught. 
over and over and over again in a way, frankly, that my male classmates and my three brothers, I don't think ever were um, to, to be kind and to be accommodating. And that is a function of my socialization that as a woman, I think makes my job a little harder. And I do really wanna work on that. So is it, I think you're saying it in a very polite way to your point, but I, I mean, is it a fair statement if I say like, it's the fear of being referred to as the bitch? Yeah, like I think so. You don't wanna be the bitch basically. Yeah, yeah. The second and a woman gets aggressive or whatever, she's labeled, oh, the bitch, you know? Um, and now instead of being able to like advocate for your client, based on like the substantive legal argument, you're holding back because you're like, would I maybe negatively impact my client or prejudice my client if the judge doesn't like me because he thinks I'm a bitch? Right. I think that's probably a part of it. You know, and this for me started, I, I was on the high school debate team, like I'm sure many lawyers were. Um, and I remember even getting, you know, comments um, that felt very gendered to me about like my tone of voice um, and, I, I think a lot of that stuff when I was young just taught me that assertive women are not seen the same way as assertive men are. They're seen as being difficult. They're seen as using hyperbolic language. You know, it's um, a very, very different standard. And I think it goes to implicit bias. I don't think it's necessarily meant to be malicious sometimes. I think it's kind of like to your, you know, you, you, you've made references to your socialization, right? So um, in some instances, it's probably something that like our, our male colleagues might not even be realizing, you know? So that's what makes these conversations so important because at least it gives us an opportunity to kind of like address it, call it out, but maybe like in a, a safe space. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but um, right. you're kind of between a rock and a hard place, right? Because on the one hand, you have to be a zealous advocate on behalf of your clients, but if your the style with which your substance is received is not received well, rather, you know, you're always going to have that fear in your mind about like, well, did I somehow harm my client by being too aggressive or something like that, you know? And I don't know if people realize how difficult of like a balancing act that is sometimes for women. It's like, I have something to say, but let me focus on my delivery so that I don't ruffle any feathers. And then, you know, you're not being yourself and you're seen as, you know, it feels like you're holding back and then you're more focused on the delivery than like the actual conversation, you know? And I don't know about you, but sometimes you leave a meeting just feeling like ineffective. Like I didn't win either, I didn't win either way. Exactly, exactly. And, I, and I think that that dance going on in my head, particularly in the courtroom setting, um, you know, that's, there's another level of fatigue there. I can't even imagine. I mean, have you had a moment where you just kind of like, you were just like, screw it. And you just kind of like went for it and you just lost that filter inhibition and it worked out well? So my um, approach to all of this is I win by preparing well. Mm -hmm. And I truly take writing seriously because that is supposed to be neutral. And so, um, I don't write hyperbolically, even on a, even on appeal. Um, I got a reply brief from DHS last week where they called they called what I had said in a written motion nonsense. This was a male DHS attorney. I would never, ever say something like that in a written brief. Um, one as an attorney, two as a woman, because I think I would be knocked in both of those ways in terms of my credibility. 
And so I try to enter a hearing with so much written down or previously submitted that I don't end up in these situations very often. What happened last week was really unexpected. Um, I didn't think the judge was gonna sort of be on my side so much about the, about the charging document. And that is a situation where I wish I had just gone for it and, and didn't. Well, I have a feeling that you're going to kind of break out of that and you're gonna go for it next time. You know, I think you're gonna go for it next time. Um, That's my hope. <laughs> but, you know, kind of continuing on in that, in, in, in that same spirit, I mean, is there something that you know now being a woman in the legal profession that you wish someone would have told you when you were starting out? I'm very grateful that my most of my mentors in law school were also women. And so we talked about we talked about these things. I remember having conversations in law school um, with students as well as mentors, literally about the tone of voice. That, like when I'm in court, I speak lower and slower than my normal voice. Um, and that's something that I think women in any leadership role, I mean, there's there's politicians who get vocal training um, so that their voice is a little bit is a little bit lower. Uh, You're I don't back think, like so much like PTSD. Exactly. But continue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, I, I remember in Texas hearing from mentors about there are certain judges in Texas where if you are a female lawyer, do not wear, do not wear pants and a jacket. Do not wear, wear I have literally wear said dress, that. Uh, yeah. Do not wear pants no, in no, a courtroom no. in Texas. They're better out here, thankfully. Um, but that was some and and to their credit, my mentors. They needed to tell me that, you know, and, and not because they thought it was right, um, but because they were trying to prepare me for the reality that, that gender dynamics are alive and well. <laughs> so um, let me compare notes with you. So first of all, you do not wear pants. You wear a, a skirt suit mid up to your knees. Right. You wear nylons or pantyhose, even if it's 115 degrees in August in Texas. So far, so good. If you are a woman, make sure that your hair is up you should have one string of pearls. <laughs> it, you remember the pearl rule? And maybe just like a dash of perfume, nothing overpowering. Like no one should actually be able to like smell your perfume. Right. Um, and at the most, if you wanna put your hair halfway back, you can put it halfway up, halfway down, but do not leave your hair down. Those are the rules. Those are things that I've heard. I've also heard I should wear heels. Always wear heels, close Which I never shoes. do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we are so from that generation. Yes, there's just there's just these oddities, but I I do feel at least in in training in law school by my mentors, I was aware of that, and I think the environment out here is better than in Texas in those ways. Um, but I you know I think being I think being a woman um, with the major with majority male colleagues now, I think there are dynamics there. Like I said, when when men are really expressive with their emotions, that just sort of rattle me because for most of my training, I had almost exclusively female clients, and so that's something that I am still really grappling with. And then, what would be your advice for um, women who are currently in the legal profession or women who are seeking to enter the legal profession? Um, just general advice, you know, about how to navigate as a woman. So I think find a find a female mentor. <laughs> All of my mentors are, are women and they were doing this before when I think some of these situations and circumstances were even worse. Um, and then secondly, this is probably, I don't know, a bit nerdy, but I, I think the more that I've done this work, 
the more I believe in just being excellent. Like, especially in the nonprofit world, we always ask people about, are you passionate? And that's important because, you know, the work is hard and you, you want to be in it for the long term. But I, I, someone once said to me, would you ever ask your surgeon if she's passionate about surgery? Probably not. You probably don't care. You probably <laughs> want her to be a really good surgeon if you're about to go under her knife. Yeah. And um, I think we have gotten that balance a little bit off, like the passion versus excellence. Passion can drive excellence. But at the end of the day, your client needs someone who is humble and therefore will do the research when they don't know a question um, and who will write well. Because I think most of the time when I walk into a courtroom, the judge has made up their mind based on what I've written. I think there probably is a slightly higher bar for women to be excellent than men. I think excellence for a woman probably still looks a little different, like make sure your voice is low enough and don't be too assertive or else you're gonna, you know, someone will take that out on your client. Like at, at the end of the day, the way you write matters. The way you talk matters, moot. <laughs> um, get lots of people to review your drafts for the good of the client. And then a secondary benefit is, I think when women make mistakes and the same I think is true for, for BIPOC, my BIPOC colleagues, that is extrapolated onto our entire group. And that's not right. And there's a burden there to carry. And the way to combat that nonsense is to continue being excellent. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so, so much. Um, that was an amazing conversation. And I think that you're a very, very inspiring figure. Um, and you are 100% worth it, uh, contrary to what she said before we started. And I would love to open it up to the group for questions. Like I said at the outset, if you want to come off of mute, turn your camera on, by all means, please do. If you want to chat it into the chat function, feel free to do that as well. But yeah, I would love to hear from the, from the group if you have any questions for Elizabeth. If you feel more comfortable typing it to me in a Teams message separately, you can do that as well. Um, so yeah, I think with that, we'll open it up. Um, okay, so we've got our first question uh, and I'll read it to you if you don't mind. It is frustrating that professional respected is taught as the opposite of typical woman traits, compassionate, calming, compromising, et cetera. Even a nonprofit world where women are abundant, there is still a different standard. In your experience, is there any way to kind of break this mold? Mm. You know, that's such an interesting question because I feel like the reason that women are so dominant in particularly asylum law is because there is so much compassion involved. As I said, you're listening to people burst into tears all the time. So in, in that way, it's like, yeah, be a woman, be feminine, right? And then go fight and be masculine. Um, and how, how extraordinarily bizarre is that, that, you know, I'm my, like the body I was born into on the one hand is great for this career and on the other hand needs to be fixed for this career. Um, so I don't know what the answer is. I think it does help that when I go into court, it is very common now for, you know, I'm, I'm a woman for the DHS attorney to be a woman. I appear before a fair number of female judges. I hope that that will slowly start to change things. I think, however, all of us are carrying so much baggage that when any woman, when we, even when the judge, DHS, and I are all female, we might all be performing a little bit um, in the ways that I talked about earlier. And so I don't know what it's all going to take, but I am hopeful that as women continue to just dominate more and more law fields, there will be 
there will be change. And, you know, it's just funny, like whoever said being assertive is masculine and compassionate is female. These are all constructs that we've made up. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited, you know, with, with, I think a lot of dialogue now about, um, uh, you know, a, a gender binary being really problematic. I think we're going to have a whole generation who grows up maybe without having been so pigeonholed. And so we'll see, you know, what might happen. Let's see if we have any additional questions. I have a question. So thank you for Elizabeth for being on here. This is super like interesting conversation. Um, so one of my question is in terms of like, you know, we talked about self-care and like what you do for yourself, but like when you have a loss, like, you know, like you lose a case or a, like a mistake or something, like how do you not let that paralyze you to like move forward with like another case or like, you know, like essentially like representing your client in the best way with that in mind, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you have a loss one day and then you got to go back to court, you know, sometimes the very next day. Um, Care Coalition is wonderful about giving us space. So if, if you need to take the afternoon off, or we have a great, we have a lot of leave that we are really encouraged to use, which, which helps. I think I, I try to just think about the very precious life of the next person and that I have to show up for them too in the way that I showed up for the person that I, that I just lost. This is, I don't know why this anecdote is popping in my head, but I'm just going to share it. Um, months ago, I was on a football field doing acro yoga, which is like two things I don't often do. <laughs> there I was doing acro, acro yoga and I was flying on top of my yoga partner and it was so fun and playful and childlike and just freeing and I'm you know I'm in literally in the air looking up at the sky and out of nowhere I thought of a detained client and I mean instant instant tears in my eyes and I just thought all I want for him is for he to have the liberty to see the sky and be silly why is that difficult? And that is a very boiled down, like not legally complex. It is just a desire in my heart for this client. And it's that flash of him coming into my mind, I think is the motivation to keep going. Like I want him to fly on somebody's feet at night. Um, and in order to do that, in the life I have chosen, that means I got to write a really good brief. So go write the damn brief. So thank you, we, thank you, thank you, Nyanka. Um, uh, we have a question from Ricardo. How do we get involved? Well, there's so many <laughs> ways. Um, we do pro bono place cases for sure. And that is something um, we, we can't take all the clients who, who need us, of course, there's too many folks in detention for us to represent. So if you are interested in doing an, your own asylum case or going to immigration court yourself, um, definitely let us know if you have language skills, we have a wide need for translation and interpretations on the hotline, and that can be done, you know, anywhere in the United States. Um, and I can put you all, I can give the email address of our volunteer coordinator um, who does that. We also would love your money. We take donations all the time and I'm not afraid to say it. 
Um, so that's certainly a very concrete way. And, and if, yeah, if pro bono options are something you'd all be interested in, I can, we can certainly talk offline about, about that coordination. Thank you. Um, and then we have a question from Justina. How do we change the systems constructs we're bound by? Do you try to push unique, what should be common sense arguments in briefs in court, et cetera? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, we are scrappy at Care Coalition. So we will say things in um, immigration hearings that we know are losing arguments, but we have a department in Care Coalition called the Impact Lab who eventually can take cases to the Fourth Circuit and Supreme Court. So we will purposefully plant these arguments in order sometimes to get a denial on an issue that we see as impact. Um, so that's one way, it's just impact litigation. I'm really proud of our lab, our, our impact lab. They are brilliant lawyers. Um, the other thing I think that won't change the system but can tweak it, you know, all of the immigration court system is housed in the executive branch. So who the president is really matters because they appoint the attorney general and the attorney general yeah, has we, tremendous power. We learned that one um, the hard way. Yes, yes exactly. So voting. Yeah. Um, so we have a question from Julia. Is there any need for non-attorneys or paralegals to assist with pro bono cases? Definitely in terms of our um, translation and oral interpretation, yes. In terms of written documents, I don't think we'd normally do that, but um, our volunteer coordinator would be the person to, um, who would have information about that. And she's Naomi at carecoalition.org, which I can put in the chat. Okay. Honestly, I can't thank you enough, uh, Elizabeth. Like I said, you are such an inspiring person. You are the real deal. Um, and you know, I think it's just really, really amazing how you've dedicated your life to human rights, to fighting for the people who need the most help. And I know that the next time I'm feeling kind of down and out, you know, or a little tired or, you know, whatever, I'm going to think about you and I'm going to think about the work that you're doing. And I'm going to think about the people that you're doing the work for, uh, and, you know, just probably count my blessings. So thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and thank you everyone at EIG for attending. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye.